Disclaimer, Lucas Oswald's audio is pretty rough this episode. Hey, welcome to the Runaways podcast. My name is Cody. Today I am joined by Lucas, Dan, and our guest today is going to be Pat. Most people should know Pat as, you know, one of the original Starvo creators in the way that, that it was played. Uh, took down the first Battle Harden along with his teammate at the time, Charles. Uh, they kind of mastermind that deck, but he's played a lot of things since then. He's probably one of the players that I know who is most likely to just pick up any deck he thinks is good and bring it to an event, uh, especially since his favorites, Old Tim and Starvo, got rotated out. But for the people who don't know you, Pat, uh, just say a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Cody. Uh, yeah, I've been playing Flesh and Blood since about Tales of Aria. Um, just absolutely love the game. Um, can't wait to, you know, just get out to as many tournaments as possible. Um I've been really enjoying Levia of late. Um, Ethan has recruited me to the the Levia uh, fan fangirl club here, um, so we've been doing a lot of fun with that deck at the moment. Uh, so that's where I'm probably uh, leaning at the moment. Dude, I need help with that deck. Yes, Dude, it's so good. I'm, I'm going so far downhill. I'm losing every game. You don't have to, <laughs> to just like you just, bad decisions. You just roll a zero off the beginning. Yes, I, like roll a one. Have no action points at the beginning of the game. Doesn't matter. You still win. Yeah. So so last night I had a turn where I played two Blood Rush and an Artivore. Mm-hmm. And then I had another Artivore waiting. And then I swung Claws twice. Yeah. And I played all those It felt really good. Two, yeah. two Blood Rushes is maybe a little ambitious and a Blood Artivore. I just like had no turn if I didn't do that. I Like after the first Blood Rush, it was going to be two Claws pass. I was Perfect. like, no, I want to do Claw Claw attack. Just do two Claws and then set the other Blood Rush and go again. Well, this is why I'm saying I need help. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Um, okay, let's actually jump into our first tar- uh, subject for the day. We're going to talk about the XP changes that were uh, announced. For the people who don't know, uh, for Pro Tour, the second Pro Tour of this year, they're no longer going to be using EXP uh, lifetime or 90 day to hand out invites. Uh, in the past, you could you know, qualify like four different ways. You could qualify for, uh, through the event, through like a, a local event. You could have ELO in either of the two categories. Uh, and then you could have EXP for a lifetime or 90 day. They're going to be getting rid of that. On top of that, they're also going to be merging the two ELOs together into what's <clears throat> called the true ELO. Uh, supposedly they're able to do this retroactively throughout the entire, all of the events you've ever played, <clears throat> which I'm pretty excited to see. Uh, what happens there. And as far as we understand, then invites, the only invites handed out for Pro Tour 2, besides winning a local tournament, will be the top 75 total ELO. So, Dan, I'm going to throw this over to you to start us off. Yep. What do you think of this change? I have a lot of thoughts. I think it addresses a lot of uh, issues that the old ELO system had, or the old invite system, rather. Um, obviously, they think there's things like XP farming, maybe in a not kosher way, whatever. Um, but more on like, there's a lot of discourse with the old system where you'd have people like in the top 50 ELO and they're like, I don't know if I should play any events this season because I don't want to risk losing that ELO and risk my invite. Where now you kind of just have to play each season or you're going to get um, outpaced on the ELO board or you just can't earn an invite. So I think it. At least for me, like I'm never going to consider not playing a qualifier season again as a result, uh, which I like. Um, honestly, the harder invites are to get, the more I want to get them. Um, so I'm on board. Okay, I'm board. Lucas, what do you think? Yeah, um, 
I'm excited. I didn't really like the XP system um, <clears throat> as a, um, a means of qualifying for Pro Tour. Um, I think generally it is. It was pretty indicative of, of skill, but I felt like it was uh, less important. Uh, not to you know like bash anyone who had a really high XP. Obviously, some of the best players in the game uh, were, were up on that leaderboard, but uh, I just prefer um, you know win percentage, uh, which is kind of what Elo is. Um, as a, a means to qualify for these events. Uh, I also like the smaller events. Um, <clears throat> as somebody who hopes to qualify for all of the events, the events get easier when there are fewer people in them. Um, although they also become a lot more concentrated with like high-level players, um, which I love. Um, I actually tend to do a lot better when I play against a lot of high-level players. <laughs> like The harder the tournament is, the better I do. Um, <clears throat> so hopefully... <laughs> Uh, the tournament's getting harder will bode well for me. Um, but yeah, it just really gets my competitive juices flowing to have, like, 75, like, world invites and then PTIs and ProQuest. Like, we could see the events be a lot smaller. Um, another thing that would happen in the past was uh, people would qualify off of multiple, um, like, leaderboards. And then there wouldn't, you know, there weren't 200 people who qualified off the leaderboard, right? Um, and so we kind of see that just, like, being easier to calculate now instead of like you know some person getting you know four invites and taking invites away from other people even though it's still fewer invites now like it's more clean cut like 75 top players in elo get it and you know we don't have anybody like stealing somebody else's xp invite even though they're you know also top 50 limited elo and cco or whatever um which also is good for my conscious because i'm always like top 50 limited and or constructed ELO, and then I'll be like 49th in XP, and I'll feel bad for taking somebody else's spot. Um, but yeah. I think it's a cool change. I'm really excited to see how it goes. Smaller tournaments are cool. Yeah. Pat, thoughts? I I think I'm I'm happy about it. Um, I would say that one of the the sad things is our kind of ongoing meme of collecting all five <laughs> Infinity Stones to qualify for the event uh, uh, is now going to not be gone by the wayside. Uh, but um, in all seriousness, I think that uh, changing XP is a good thing overall. Um, the lifetime players like. As long as you basically continued to play, it was very difficult to lose your your status. Um, like the the, I would say that probably the the top fifty uh, lifetime XP has been, you know, over the last three or four pro tours, um, uh, and large events where they're quali giving qualifications from XP have been, you know, probably ninety five percent of the same people, um, just because of how the system works, um, and. Uh, for 90 day, you'll have the, um, the people that are like grinding and trying to like play every event and getting burned out. Like I know specifically some of our locals when they're grinding for 90 day XP, like they're just so burnt out by the end of the season. And, and it's just like, at what, at what cost does it come to get these invites? And, you know, you see these players playing four or four or five armories a week. And, you know, it's just like, you know, it's not healthy for their their uh, mental capacity, um, even if it gets you an entry. So I, I do like the fact that um, that we'll be going to an all ELO system. Um, I am interested to see this true ELO thing, and hopefully it, it is what they say, um, where we can go back and retroactively 
apply everything and um so presumably that will work correctly i have faith in lss that that will work because you know they say it will <laughs> so um but it'll be nice also to you know um just be like oh well, i can't play this limited event you know because you know i'm, I'm right right at the cusp so um you know i i think that people playing more is better um and this this system makes it so people play more um in these elo events um like rtn season and things like that um also the value of a pti is going to go way up presumably um the <laughs> which is you know good for the people that have some but yeah. you know if if you are a person that has bought ptis before i uh, expect the value of these ptis to go up considerably because um less people will be getting entries um so presumably more people less will people be selling them. too what's that less people selling too like there's no yes. way mine are going anywhere yeah i need them I, I i am very upset that i uh split a finals of a uh an event for la now because you know and gave the pti away because i was like oh i've got pti's <laughs> you know but you know now i'm using one and i'm like oh geez so you know you brought up I, a... I think that yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just I just think that that it's a good thing to let the players, um, you know, get more value out of these, um, um, and people like you know that have fifteen some PTIs will be <laughs> uh, Brody and Michael Vang and all these people that just have them racked up. You know, will be very happy with this change. So, yeah, I think you brought up a good point about uh, people getting burned out uh, running the ninety day. It's not even just burned out. It's like it makes your locals better. Because people aren't having to grind local events for 90-day EXP and having to play sweaty when you're at a locals, which is not how it should be. And so yes. completely removing uh, EXP from the equation, I think, just makes it a better experience for people going to local armories um, as well. And I think that's a very positive change. I mean, I, I'm super excited about this for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I just think XP is bad as an indicator for a, like giant event of a tier four event you know as we've been calling it uh, i don't think it's a good indicator for an, an invite system i think that elo this adjusted elo i'm probably you know getting screwed in the, in the deal but i'm like okay yeah. with that because i think it's better like my my cc elo is like trash can level and then my uh limited elo is like eighth in the world so when those things get averaged out together it's going to be like a trash can level but that's fine i'm like I don't have like any issue with that. I'll just try and win a local event. You know how I always qualify. Uh, I think this might hurt some regions if they don't have enough pro like pro tour invite events. Um, I'm not as concerned about the ELO. I, I did see a lot of people talk about how not having enough rated events is going to cause an issue for some people, but realistically, most people are not going to qualify based on ELO. Uh, ELO is pretty difficult. Even if you've like, I've been ranked four in the world before in CC, I've been, ranked 300th before in CC after being ranked third in the world. It's just like, it doesn't matter. It's so hard to hold on to, to those ELO numbers. You're going to go up and down. You might as well just play the events. But the real question is how many of the pro tour invite events are they having? So if like these regions who don't have a lot of ELO access, if they're only getting one or two pro quest events, like that's pretty hard. And they're already difficult because you have to win, but it's not that much difficult than our area or like this area over here. Yeah, I have, I'm going to be able to go to probably four or five pro quests and all of those are going to have 30 to 40 people at them all trying to compete. And so like, that's still pretty difficult to win. 
you know, to try try and get that. And so I think, I think as long as they have enough uh, pro quests to go to, you shouldn't really see it hurt the smaller regions as much because the ability to qualify will be pretty similar for everybody. It's already a very hard event to qualify for. Uh, if someone disagrees, I would love to hear the other take on that. But obviously, if they only have one pro quest, if there's like Brazil and they have one pro quest, like that's that's a travesty, right? Like that should be rectified. But if they have, you know, three or four events to go to, that's kind of the same as what we have here, right? Yeah. Do you, do you think that they should add more rated events or make certain events that are not rated currently now have be rated instead then to kind of counteract this? Or Well, everything is rated. Uh, ProQuest well, are rated. Battle Hardens are rated, I guess, but like... ProQuest are also rated. Yeah. ProQuest are rated, ProQuest yeah. Are I guess uh, everything yeah, but nothing else. You can't rate armories. There's yeah. no yeah. way. Please do not. I just think... I think people focusing on trying to qualify via the ELO system is very, very difficult. It's not something that's like... Mm-hmm. Most people can accomplish it, no matter what region you're from. It's just a very hard thing to be able to do, and you mainly just have to spike a, a big event. Like, it's... Most people who raise and lower in, into the ELO is they spike a big event. There's very few people who just like sit there. Uh, obviously, there are some, you know, Hamilton and Brody and them, like for the most part, are always like sitting right up there. But for the for most players, you're just going to fluctuate in and out of the ELO system. Yeah, I think you're right that you pretty much just ignore it at this point. Yeah, I just like you just play your best at each event. If you mm-hmm. land top 75 when it's time, great. Yeah, but you just got to win a pro quest, right? Like. Mm-hmm. That's hard. Uh, I would like to see more aggressive pass down in ProQuest due to this change. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I th- I believe it passes down the second if you already have qualified via winning an event. I believe that I've been told that by judges. Yeah. I'm not a hundred percent, but I believe that's accurate. But you have to you have to have won yeah. a ProQuest already. Yeah. So like, if I have an invite, I'm, let's say I'm like fiftieth in Elo or whatever. If I win a ProQuest, the invite does not pass it down. Um, but potentially that could be something that they could solve. It's like at the end, they look at the top 75 and then everyone who won a ProQuest and then everyone who won a ProQuest that was in the top 75, you know, passed down to second. Um, that might be a little strange. Uh, yeah. If obviously splitting is kind of a touchy subject, but um, the kind of fear of, you know, let's say you get second at a ProQuest and the person that you lost to is like 70th, and you don't know if they'll be 75 by the end of the season, that can be a, a little awkward situation. But I guess from LSS point of view, that's not really a, <laughs> a problem because anything that's not playing yeah, the game, probably a good yeah, thing. for them, it's probably yeah. a good thing. Anything that's not playing the game of Flesh and Blood is not what they want. So, yeah. I mean, I don't think it needs to pass down based on your ELO ranking, but like if I win an, a pro quest and the person I'm playing you know, in the finals has also already won a ProQuest. I would like to see a way for it to pass down to third, fourth, like one of those two players. And then you have to play a third and fourth game wow. then, which adds more time to the event. Well, so it would be played actually, yeah, sometimes it finals, actually, but yeah. yeah. So it potentially could. Yeah. But it's just like, I like to compete, right? Like we go to these events, even if it's a ProQuest, I like to go and try and win the event. But if I already have qualified and I know how difficult it is to qualify for a pro, a pro tour event, there's like a part of me that doesn't like if I'm knocking someone out who like really wants their invite. Like obviously they should have to win, but like it's really hard. You have to win the whole event and there's a lot of good players and especially in a lot of pockets of, of the US. I would really like to just be able to compete like full out, not have to like worry about that at all and be like, 
hey, if if me and so and so make it to the finals, we both already have an invite. It's going to get passed down to third or fourth. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that just also, feels better, I think, for everyone. And and then you get to just play the game. Yeah. Also, from LSS's point of view, it actually promotes splitting, or sorry, it doesn't promote splitting or, or any kind of you know yeah. stuff happening if it passes down because there's the thing now where it's like you know let's say I have an invite and then you know I play against. You know, I know the other end of the bracket's going to be somebody else with an invite, but I play against somebody who doesn't have an invite, and it's my friend. Like, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of potential inclinations in those situations to be like, well, I want you to win so that you can get the invite, but, but I also want to win a gold foil or any potential additional prizing that, uh, you know, the, the local store is, is providing. And that can be where, you know, people get into splitting situations, and if LSS is trying to prevent that, having invites passed down more aggressively is a really good way of doing it. Um, it potentially gets to the awkward thing. It's redistributing prizes. It's not yeah, prizes. Of course, of course. Re- it, is, it is redistributing prizes. It's, it's redistributing very, prizes. It's, it's very, very, very important to know that yeah. wording. It's yeah. very different. My favorite phrase. You're taking the prizing for first and second, and you're you're deciding yeah, where they right. actually go. Has no hmm. It has no bearing on yes, the outcome. I love, the I love that discussion. Like, can we discuss yes. the redistribution of prizes? <laughs> <laughs> I just yeah, I don't like yeah, having to do any of that. Yeah, you know. No, it's a big issue for me too. The way we're there to play, we're there to win. As soon as I win one pro class, nah, I feel obligated. I don't want to not. Yeah, especially when it's like a teammate more. and everything else, and especially where yeah. a lot of us are in the same area. I mean, I've been to pro quest, and it's like late in the season. It's like the last pro quest, and like the top eight is like five people who already have their invite, and then it's just like a scoop session to get one person yeah. all the way up there. And you're like, I would like to just play the tournament. Yeah, I've seen people you know? top eight and just not play and invites like just literally like yeah like you get invited to the pro tour like and 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 the other seven people or whatever just like don't have an opportunity to get the gold right um it's kind of awkward pat it looked like you were trying to say something did you have no the one thing that i'll say is that that whenever i'm in the situation you're describing where you've already won a pro quest I'm going in with the mentality of I'm going to be conceding a lot of the games that I'm playing. And I don't know if that is, you know, necessarily a good or bad thing. But, you know, once I already have my invite, like I'm playing defense, you know, I I want my friends to get qualified for the event. Um, You know, I expect nothing and I expect I'm not going to get any prizes for this event if I play, Um, you know, so that's I think that that. And I I assume that a lot of people are in that same mindset when when they're at these events. and, you know, I don't know if adding additional pass downs helps that in any aspect, but I do, I do understand your guys's logic and points that, you know, maybe it would be better if, if that's the case. So I don't know. Yeah. I just like to be able to play the events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I think we have talked a ton about the XP changes. I am excited to see what happens with that and how it's implemented. Uh, but we have another big topic, which is we got LL changes. Like, I don't, I didn't really expect this. I don't know if anyone was like really expecting it, but all of a sudden there was just a post that said, Hey, we're trying to balance LL format. And for the people who are not aware, no cards are banned, but they did restrict a whole bunch of cards. So Awakening restricted. That means you can have one, only one. Uh, Channel Lake Frigid is restricted for some reason. Uh, Crippling Crush is restricted. Hyperthermia for some reason is also restricted. Uh, Oakenold is restricted. Starstruck is restricted. And then Warmonger's Diplomacy is restricted. Uh, so that's a bunch of changes to try and balance the LL format. 
is this too much? Does it do what they think? What What's your thoughts? I have to go to the person who's played more Starvo than any other deck in the game. They, I think you've played as much Starvo as I've played Chain, uh, to be fair. So, Pat, what, what do you think of these changes? What's going on? Um, so, coming from the event in Barcelona, where there was 114 Starvos and all the top eight of Starvos, I do appreciate the fact that they're making an effort to, to fix the format. Um, one of the ones that I had been calling for was Warmonger's Diplomacy. Like, um, I do think that that card existing just like really hurts the decks like Chain uh, and, and to an extent Viscerai as well um, from existing in the format. Um, regardless of whether your opponent even played, actually, I'm pretty confident that Lucas and I and Charles all played less than one copy of, of Warmonger's Diplomacy um, at Barcelona. I know I played zero. And I think Cody played zero as well um, um, because we just were like, well, we're going to make chain prove to us that he can actually beat this card first. But we just were assuming that nobody would play chain because they would be <laughs> just afraid of warmongers. Um, as for the Starvo cards, um, Awakening obviously makes sense. This card is just the most overpowered card that has ever existed. Um, it was, you know, the the reason why aggro decks could just not exist at the time when when there was three copies of that card in your deck and being able to go get a you know two card 14 off of pulverize with an absurd hit effect um so that one makes sense to me some of the ones that don't make sense to me um are starstruck and crippling crush i think that taking those ones away are, is a bit odd to me um but i can see oak and old uh, i can see channel lake frigid i can see um hypothermia just like these powerful ice cards that one are backbreaking and uh you have hypothermia that can also just completely screw decks over like chain and phi and things like that um so i, I don't know I, I i overall i'm i'm just happy that lss is making an attempt to fix it um and it shows that they're really approaching um taking this uh, this format seriously um which is a good thing overall. And I think everybody should, you know, thank, thank LSS for, you know, making an effort, you know, because if you see, you know, eight Starvos, you know, they have to do something, you know, like this to, you know, probably peel away some of the value that, that he gets. <laughs> I could play chain again. You, you can. Yeah. I, I, I think you legitimately can play chain. Yeah. I, I looked at this. I said, Oh, I play chain now. <laughs> Because, like, I'll deal with one Warmonger. So you get to Warmongers me once. Hopefully you see it on my power turn, and I'm low enough that it matters. So I can actually play my favorite deck again. Awesome. Uh, I think this is a little overkill. I mean, I don't think Hypothermia is, like, needed at all. Um, because you have to play it, and it takes your whole turn for the most part. And it's, like, whatever. Um, but, sure, less ice for me to deal with. I'm not going to complain about less ice for a chain to deal with. Uh, but it does unlock Viscerai a little bit better as well. Uh, which I think is good. Uh, I'm not 100%. I don't think that Starvo's dead by any means because one of the issues we were running into when we were building it, it's like for everyone in the background, is like you can't run three Starstrucks, three Cripplings, three Okanolds like in every matchup all the time. You can, but your chance of fusing goes down significantly and like playing the hyperfuse version is like way better into Prism. Um, and so like you had to cut those in some spaces. So being restricted down to X amount of them is okay. I would have liked if they left one of them unrestricted though. I think that'd have been a little bit more balanced. 
Um, but it does look like they're not banning anything anymore. Like they've just gone and decided not to ban. Honestly, my opinion is they could have just banned Awakening and banned Warmongers, and we have like a, a meta. But that was that was what I thought that way they were going to do is they were just going to ban those two cards. But yeah. I think that they're kind of approaching it like kind of vintage for Magic, where they yeah. want everybody to be playing with the most powerful cards, whether that you get to play three of them or one of them is the only issue. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the at least the initial idea mm-hmm. uh, with that. Dan, are you joining me on the chain train? Of course. No, I, I love these changes. Having not played the format at all, I think this is now the superior format, and it's not close. Superior um, format? Yeah, all of these cards that I restricted are some of my least favorite cards in the game. <laughs> Only having to see one at most each game sounds great. Chain's playable. I don't know. Everything sounds great to me. I hope we get a calling. Oh, an LL calling would be awesome. Hey, yeah, that would be some cool. number of the callings will be other. Blitz and LL, mainly. Um so we're almost mm-hmm. certainly going to get an LL calling somewhere. I mean, at least 10, what was it, 10% of callings are LL or Blitz? Like, just just mm-hmm. not at a major, please. I'd like to play in it. Yeah, I don't mind. I think, I think the format's too young right now, but I could Metal. see uh, going to the, the, the world's format they had last year, but with Living Legend instead of Blitz. I didn't prepare for it. I really want, to want a reason calling, to play this yeah, format, that's the big one. Uh, also, I could see, like... Yeah, I can also I know there's nothing like scheduled during the season or something like that um, at the local level because this format is oh, be so awesome. much fun. I like that. And at the local level, like this would be awesome. It's like the least new player friendly though because what yeah, new it's not the best cards, for new players. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a potential that the battle harden for Philly, I believe, could be LL. It's to be decided, I believe, for what the format is. It isn't like a week before um, PT or something like that. Um, I think two weeks. Okay. Uh, and so like, that would be a good way to like, not ha- force people to play their CC event, uh, like events at the, that event before pro tour. And then you just make it LL and it's like a battle hardened That's LL. That'd yep. be sweet. Um, I hope it's CC. I want the my, uh, pro tour. my main <laughs> thoughts for the restrictions are kind of different. I like that the meta is being shaken up and I think that star getting worse and chain of Israel and all these other decks prism gets a lot better. Um, I think that all of this is interesting. My main problem is coming from Yu-Gi-Oh! Uh, certain cards being restricted is a little scary to me. Um, <clears throat> I don't mind having a restricted list, but I wish that there was also a ban list. Um, some cards, I think, being out one is fine. Things like Oakenwold or Crippling Crush or Channel Lake Frigid are really interesting. Um, because while they're blowouts, they're power effects that you can set up, and you can have these, this one really big power turn with them. Like having one Oakenwold game is okay but like especially in flesh and blood where you see your whole deck a lot of games being able to resolve pretty consistently one token old is cool um but there are some cards whose like way that you cast them and you play them i'm not a huge fan of being at one uh because they increase variance a little bit uh the main two are warmongers and awakening uh warmongers against chain in particular is a little bit of a scary card for me um, approaching it from a competitive standpoint. Um, because it, let's say you see like half your deck or so in like a mid-range or aggro mirror and you're playing this chain. Like the difference between seeing Warmongers on turn one and seeing it on Shackle 5 and not seeing it at all is potentially ridiculous. Like there's a reason the card was keeping chain out of the format. The card's insane. Um, in the map, like it's it's a blowout, right? It wins you the turn cycle on the spot, um, and adding a little bit of variance there is a little uncomfortable. 
Um, also, into fatigue matchups, um, especially if Chain's relying on Duskblade or Seeds, there are potentially, like, really big punishes for getting Warmongered on your, your pop-off turn. And if it's Shackle, like, 7 or 8, 9 that you're going off of, there's potential that, like, you're not going to see Warmongers every, turn, every time as the fatigue player. And if the matchups where you're fatiguing Chain turn into... I'm 70% to draw Warmongers and Arsenal it before Shackle 7, and I'm 30% to not. Like, that's a lot of variance to add in. It just doesn't need to happen. And I, I don't think that there's a whole lot of value to having one Warmongers. Like, I don't know that Chain's matchup percentage goes a whole lot down. I mean, playing one Warmonger is a huge swing, but, like, I'd rather see his map matchup percentage just go up than have people, like, rely on this kind of weird variancy power card. Um, and then on the other end... Yeah, but that, that fits the current build cycle of how they're making the card game. Like, they want more variants. They they want I plays think... like this. They've been intentionally setting up situations that make this happen. So I think this like this fits with their current model. I don't like yeah. it, personally. I, I agree with you. Yeah. I'm just you know, I think, playing I think there's healthy variants and unhealthy variants. Like, coming, like I said, from Yu-Gi-Oh, there's a pretty extensive limited list. I have this like common hot take that like I don't think that the limited list should exist for generic cards in Yu-Gi-Oh!, um, just having cards that are not searchable that, that you can only have one of Awakening, like I said, is another example where, like, some aggro matchups, you'll be behind. And then if you draw Awakening, you almost certainly win. And if you don't draw Awakening, you almost certainly lose. It's like you have, like, maybe three to four turns where you can do it and get away with it. And it's just, like, such a huge swing either way that I'd rather see the card at three so that you can consistently, you know, like, if Starbo's the best deck and everybody's playing Starbo, I don't mind it. But, like, if people should be playing Phi, unless Starvo draws Awakening from turns 3 to 7, then it's, it's a little bit unfortunate. Um, so I, those two cards I would rather have yeah. just seen banned, but everything else seems fine. I have no idea how good Starvo is, uh, but we have a new meta, so I'm excited to go. Oh, I yeah, think he's better now. Yeah, Pat, I would a I would argue, and, and you can let me know, do you think this means that you should play defensive Starvo now? Yeah, I mean, there was the old, like, Michael Hamilton fatigue Starvo that like, you know, he showed that was like a big thing that played zero copies of awakening um, because you were going for pitch stacking. But yep. um, one of the things that you were usually re relying on for pitch stacking was the Okanolds that you would be setting up to <clears> pitch stack. Um, so you lose access to that. Um, but like all of the Starvos that I saw, uh, with the maybe exception of one, we're all on like stalagmite first cycle. Um, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna fuse more than you, hopefully, and win. Um, but I would like to see, you know, the Ram's Head, um, you know, kind of turbo defense version with like um, Gordy played a, like a similar version. He still had stalagmite, but um, he had um, turn timber, turn timbers, and staunches, um, and he was playing like a like a bigger a bigger game and. I, I I got Gordy was I lost my winning in in the penultimate round um, against Gordy in that match and it was uh, uh, a very interesting take on Starvo that I was happy to see so I'm sure that we can see some more defense there also with, with the changes. Well, most of the time I think the def the defensive version does win in the mirror. Like it has, it, it can 100 percent lose, but it has a higher percentage of winning by playing the defensive way because it's more uh -huh. consistent. And like now, because you're limited on, you're restricted on all your power cards, you have all this open space now. The issue with playing the defensive version is you just got bodied by Prism. But because you have yes. all this open space now, you can like 
fill in the Starstrucks, the Okanols, the Crippling Crushes, fill those in with D-Reacts, and then you can still run the sideboard package, which is like, put all my elements in and just like hammer the face of the prism because you just are forced now to have these open slots. So I think it actually might be better because I think mm-hmm. technically the defensive version is just a overall <coughs> better deck, in my opinion, yeah. um, than the aggro version. when Starvo was legal in CC too. Every van just yeah, made I it think, stronger. Yeah. Because you take all this junk and he's just more consistent. There's a couple, there's a couple things about that. I think that um, with Awakening at three and like, like no bans on anything, uh, I think that Offensive Starvo was actually the best way to play him in the mirror. Uh, I played a lot of defensive Starvos and Barcelona, and obviously I beat all of them. I got lucky at that event. I fused more than my opponents, but I fused more more than them because I didn't have six bad D-Reacts in my deck. I think now, though, mm-hmm. with the changes, it does really encourage you to play defensive, um, which is kind of weird because you also lose like a bunch of three blocks... Your ice cards are a lot worse, which makes defensive Starvo a lot worse. Not having hypothermia into the aggro matchups, not having channel light fridge into the aggro matchups, you know, not having as many war monitors in the chain. Like defensive Starvo loses a lot, um, but I still think that it is like these guys said, potentially better. Um, there's also just like you have to fill the rest of your deck with more stuff now. Like those cards were in your deck in a lot of matchups, so you have to replace them, and it'll be interesting to see if we replace them with. IT encounters or glacial footsteps. Do we replace them with spinal crushes or red evergreens? Um, I mean, spinal crushes are already red. Whatever. Debilitators, no wonder, or whatever. Do we replace them with three blocks or two blocks, basically? Entangle. Entangle, yeah, sure. All, all of these, like, more defensive, mid rangey kind of things. I, I'm very interested to see if Starvo's becoming like Olden, where you have this potential pitch deck, but you're playing, like, CNC Pommel, maybe, or, like, Pommel Spinal Crush, like, Interesting things like this, or if we are just playing like three evergreen, three breakground, three autumn's touch, like three yellow autumn's touch, like three blue icy encounter, blue ice quake. Get those like, colors in. Yeah, just like the one awakening, one open all these better draws, final crashes, and like just just hoping. Uh, and I'm I'm really interested to see where it goes. Maybe there's a hybrid plan in there for Prism, but I think it's interesting. Well, yeah, you definitely need a hybrid plan for Prism. Um, yeah. And I think this gives you enough deck slots to make that work, which was mm-hmm. like the issue before. You just couldn't like you. Yeah. You might as well just go all in with it. Yeah, your deck got worse. Uh, I'm curious to see. I don't know. Uh, interesting format. <laughs> I get to go back to uh, pitch stacking the bottom of my deck and then hoping they don't have warmongers. At, at one point it was, <laughs> "Hey, do you have snag?" And this point is going to be, "Hey, do you have warmongers?" I <laughs> change them and back in um, the format, baby. But we will definitely be playing chain moving forward. At least I will be. I just got to figure out if it's if we get an event. Is it Visrai? Uh Is it like um, Vincent chain or is it a little chain? So, okay. Uh, next, let's move to our main topic here. Uh, I think this is something that at least I get asked a lot. I'm sure other people get asked a lot, but it's how to pick a deck for a tournament. And I want to break this down in a couple of different ways. So the first thing I want to put down is like at each level. So how do you pick a deck for your pro quest, right? How do you pick a deck then for, and I'm going to put like pro quest battle hardened dish in the same look, same area. I think those are kind of the same level tournament. Uh, and then the next uh, group is going to be calling nationals. I think those are for the most, for the most part, the same level event. And then tier four events, which would be like pro tour worlds. 
So I don't know if uh, anyone wants to start this off and go ahead and grab it. But what what do you think for, you know, each level, what you should be looking for? Okay, Lucas. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Just play whatever. It's a very simple. It's a very simplified version of my answer. Um, but my general philosophy with Flesh and Blood is you take a good deck uh, that you know, ideally, or that you want to learn and you think is good, um, and you can play that to the best of your ability. Uh, I think time and time again, we've seen that these top events are not always uh, populated, like the top cuts of these events are not always populated by the decks that people think are the best. You know, if Lexi is the best deck of the format, it's not even close then why are there decks that aren't Lexi in top eight? And why is Lexi top eighting one or two slots in a, a battle hard? And it's because mastery is so rewarded. I do think you should be playing a good deck. Um, I think a good way to you know make this, you know if it's a step-by-step process, is figure out what the good decks are, and then choose one of those, and then play it, and then play it a lot, a lot, and a lot. Maybe you play a couple, figure out which one you like. Um, but ultimately, I think you should focus on playing the deck well over just playing the best deck because the best deck doesn't matter. I mean, we played Icelander in Nationals and we got Dan and I both top eight and that deck was terrible. So that was by far the best deck. <laughs> Not even close. My take is very simple too. Okay. Um, I think at every level you should play the deck that you can play the best. If it's close, you should play the deck you can play the best. That is best into the meta you expect to see. The only exception is when ice is in the format, you should play the ice deck that you can play the best. <laughs> um, so my my philosophy from cards like has evolved over uh, a long career of gaming, but I have kind of I think gone full circle a little bit because my like I first I was like well let's play the deck that I think is the most interesting. And then I was like, well, let's play the best deck and play it well. Um, and then now for Flesh and Blood, I, I would say that there are certain decks that I consider, quote unquote, the best deck that I just refuse to play. Like, I could not get my head around Lexi. Um, like, I knew that the Lexi was like a better choice for Pro Tour Baltimore. Um, I, I felt like I was like not, I'm, I'm actively choosing to play a worse deck based on our testing. Um, but like, comfortability has to be. Um, something that you take into account um you you definitely like you know don't need to you know like lucas said like as long as you're you know you're, you're getting good um results and you are making every best effort to play the deck to the best of your ability um you won't lose that many points in this in getting in flesh and blood um so i i think that um uh that is one thing that i really do enjoy about flesh and blood is that you don't have to, um, you know, always just lock in and I'm going to play, have to play the quote unquote best deck. Where do you see time and time again, where we have top eights that have seven different heroes in top eight? It's, it's because people are playing decks that they enjoy and decks that they are comfortable with. And they're, you know, getting best mileage out of these decks, um, which is one of the things I think is so great about Flesh and Blood. And you can't convince me otherwise. <laughs> it's also like if your goal is to win an event, you really can't afford to drop games because you're in situations you're not familiar with with your deck yeah. and you make a mistake. Like You're just not winning that tournament if that happens like twice. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to disagree with you guys a little bit here. Uh, I think <laughs> I think if you're going to go play in a pro tour, 
uh, like a Pro Tour qualifier, like a Pro Quest. I think if you're going to go play a Pro Quest, you play the most consistent deck that you're good at. The, uh, the reason for that is you're going to play against players who are all different levels of skill. You don't want to play a deck that just has uh, a bunch of middling matchups that, you know, are flipping coins a lot of the time. I think you want to play a deck that is very consistent at a powerful game plan. I think that's why Lexi was extremely good in the last ProQuest uh, section. When I needed the win event, that was the deck I picked up, even if it wasn't the deck I was playing all the time. I was like, I'm not going to play Icelander. Uh, Icelander you know, has too many risks for me at this event. I'm just going to play a very solid, consistent deck that asks a lot of questions as Lexi. Um, I think that's what you want to do at a ProQuest level. I don't think you just want to... Don't grab a, a pet deck if you're trying to win the event. Obviously, that can work, but you want to play whatever deck is, is highly consistent. Um, I think like Drillmize are good picks right now for, for like a, if you're going to go to a pro quest. Uh, I think dashes are good for that decision. Um, even Bravo is super playable in that position as well um, if you have a good Drillmize plan. But I, you know, you're not going to pick like, I'm not going to pick a Azuri if I'm going to go try and win my pro quest. And the reason for that is it has too many completely negative matchups um, that it, it can't really play the game in. It's a little bit harder. I think these are important considerations when you're you know, trying to win the event 100%. Um, and you can extend that to a battle harden um, uh, as well, but you get a little bit, uh, you can you can kind of try and play the meta a little bit more at a battle harden than you can at your pro quest. I don't think you should be trying to play the counter deck to the most popular deck at your pro quest. Like, that's why I don't think you should, like, you shouldn't bring Azuri in the last format when Lexi was around because there's not enough Lexis for you to feed on as the, as the Azuri player. Um, I would also say that when you're going to events that have a draft as a major portion, your CC deck doesn't matter. Uh, and uh, I, you're not playing that many rounds. You're only playing eight rounds of, of CC. Uh, you kind of need the 5-1 or 6-0 your draft anyway. So uh, Worlds, Pro Tour, Nationals. That's why we got away with playing Icelander. We're talking about how like it doesn't matter, and I agree with you guys. But like the reason we got away with playing Icelander is because six of the rounds were draft, so it didn't matter. Like you just have to five one or six zero draft, and then the rest of it's fine. Um, and so in that case, I think it's a lot better to just pick like a deck that has polarizing matchups. Uh, like I don't want to give like too much, because, like it's a lot of information, but like you should just pick up a, a deck that has polarizing matchups to make your CC matches like. A lot easier, and then you just have to coast on your ability to play the limited uh, formats. I mean, feel free to jump in if you guys have some more comments to break in here a little bit. But I think it's a little no, bit more than just play play what you think you're comfortable on. Well, if I have to give advice to all of the people, I would give that advice. I do think there's like a clear exception when there's like a very clear best deck, like yeah. Chain Starvo. Icelander Oldham, like you have to play that deck at like pro quest level for sure. Like you're just not winning that event probably because that deck is so much better than the deck you brought. Agree. I think I think you just want to play yeah. a consistent deck locally. Yeah, that's I think that, my, that'll make yeah, your when life. When I'm saying like play a good deck. Yeah, I agree. So you're telling me I shouldn't play Levi or Rolling Scouts. <laughs> well, I mean that's always just the best, most consistent deck. I mean, as long as you just roll better, like it's very consistent. I've learned that Leviathan is the worst deck for ProQuest and below. That's been my experience the past two weeks. I don't think I'd bring Leviathan to a like a ProQuest if I had to win it. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit too big of a risk, I think, in my opinion. If there's another like more consistent deck that I could bring 
that I think I could just like try and outskill people on afterwards versus like having to roll and having to do other other things to hope to win the matchups. I don't I don't think that what you're saying is wrong. Like I don't I don't think that uh it's crazy to consider just playing like consistency, but I don't know. I, I I just in my head I'm always about being comfortable with what you're playing. Like and and maybe that's not true for everybody, but at least for me, um when I when I get into the games, if I I won't say like that I get into like autopilot, but you get into situations where um, you are very familiar with the um, the situation that you're playing because you've been in that situation before, um, or you've been in a similar situation where you can you know extrapolate you know okay so this turn I can you know block with these two cards and then I can make this this attack on this two or three card hand um, and like for me personally that's why I've always kind of tended to go towards guardians and. Um, and now brutes because like I don't know it just kind of fits my play style um, but I, I don't think that going for consistency is is necessarily a bad thing but I would just at least keep in the back of your head if, if you don't think that you are going to um, enjoy or you know get into a point where your head like, like I also like if Kano was the deck I could not play Kano like for example like I, I just don't think that my brain capacity could handle playing Kano for eight rounds of some event. It, it, even if it's Kano's the best deck, like there's just no chance I'm going to play Kano at an event. And, and, you know, if, while there are many people that can do it, it's just not me. So that's the type of things that I'm thinking about when I'm trying to pick a deck. No, like I agree. Like don't play a deck you can't play. Like don't yeah. play a deck that you're not comfortable on. But like for a lot of people, but if, if you're going for consistency. Yeah. Well. Yeah. No, I hundred percent agree. Like if, if for your case you didn't play a lot of Lexi, it doesn't make sense if you're trying to win a pro quest to go play Lexi. Like that's not what I'm saying. But for a lot of people, they have you know, I, I get asked the question of like they they can play some Dromai, they can play some some Lexi, and they can play Icelander. Like these are their three choices. Like what do I bring? And it's just like one of them, one of those three choices is completely fine. I would probably just bring the Lexi and beat people. Right? Like it has the higher upside, the, the higher power there if you can play all the decks. If you can't play the Lexi deck, now you're deciding between the Dromai. Uh, and the other one, and then you have to make a guess, like how many people, how many fives and ninjas do you actually think are going to be in the room? And then it's like, bring Dromai then, because people make mistakes against Dromai and you can probably get some free wins at like a pro quest level that way. I think these are like kind of important things to think about if you have the capability of playing more than one deck. Uh, obviously when it gets to major events, you're, you know, you have to put a lot more time in it, but that's why our team always ends up with on multiple decks. You know, we don't have one deck because we don't have, you know, a padre like a, a one thought on how you should pick a deck or what you should play, which I think is a good idea. Like it's a good thing for a team. Yeah. Which is one thing that I really enjoy about our team is that, is that we can take so many different decks and pilot them all to a good uh, enough spot where you see multiple of us, multiple of us doing very well with different decks and i don't know I, whereas where you see other teams where it's there tend to be all just one deck most yeah, of the US time so. five five runaways yeah. until they don't four different yeah. decks sweet. yeah on all different <laughs> decks basically. yeah uh that's always a great thing uh but yeah i think it, it starts with just being comfortable on multiple decks and then being able to move from there and the way the game is going right now it's a lot harder to be a specialist 
Uh, I would yes. love to be a specialist. I enjoyed being a chain specialist, and that was some of the most fun that I've had playing. Um, and then playing Prism, and then that got banned as well. And so, like, I would like to be a specialist, but it's very risky. It's very risky right now to be a specialist and not be, like, branching out on multiple different decks, I think. Especially with the changes to how fast characters are in a living legend, because, like, before you would have maybe a year and a half, two years to play a hero, mm -hmm. and now it's probably closer to 10 months to a year if, if the hero is really good. So it's hard to maintain that. Yep. Okay. Um, we do have a good handful of Discord questions. Um, all of the, the questions that come from people who are in our Discord um, at either the Majestic Rare, uh, the Rare or the Majestic level inside of our premium Discord. If you would like your questions answered, feel free to join the Discord. There'll be a link down below uh, in the show notes, uh, and then you can get your question featured on the next episode. But let's start off here with, uh, can you give some examples of what having a game plan for a deck looks like and examples of games you've played where your game plan changed and what you would have done um, if you're only looking at turn-to-turn -turn math? And this is coming from Fighting Walloom. This is a little callback to our last episode where we talked about having game plans uh, for certain matchups is one of the ways to play when we got a question on turn-to-turn -turn math. Uh, it's That happens a lot less, I would say, in the format now, but I will say LL format that we talked about is like tons of game plans have to go into that because, you know, it's such it's so uh, much shorter and you have higher power turns to come back with. Uh, but yeah, what are some examples that you guys can think of of some game plans going into certain Yeah, decks? Um, so there are a couple like categories of them. Uh, the first one that I think is really important is any sort of fatigue matchup um, where you, you might get to second cycle or you might run out of cards. Um, having a game plan or sort of like way to beat the fatigue deck uh, is really important. Uh, and then from the other side, being the fatigue deck, like if your game plan is to fatigue like Dash IO and you're playing Bravo, for example, um, you might have this blue three block that, you know, if you're doing the math, you would attack for four with your Titan's Fist or your Anathos. Uh, but since your game plan is fatigue, it's better to block three um, if that's what you're trying to do. Um, <clears throat> another like level of game planning uh, is in some matchups, it's really hard to just do the math on some things. Like a good example of this is Dromai. Like uh, playing Dromai, it's really hard to evaluate you know how much in Asvali is going to be worth if you're playing against like Dash, for example, um, because it could be worth you know. A bunch. It could be worth two swings and plus three life. Uh, it could also be worth a popper, um, and you, you know you lose your action point. Uh, and so I think another example of game plans is not necessarily trial and error, but getting experience in a matchup and understanding where you're supposed to either in the fatigue situation. There are more situations like this, but where you break the math or you do something that's not um, you know the highest value to play, or if the math is unclear, like. Another example is a card like Channel Lake Bridget or Hypothermia or Warmongers. Like, you can assign arbitrary values to all of these cards, um, but really, ultimately, you don't always know how effective they're going to be. Um, and so like a game plan thing would be, you know, into Azalea, when you see Warmongers, play Warmongers, right? Value it a lot higher than you do with other cards. Um, and you can't even try to assign arbitrary numbers to these, and that can kind of be included in your game plan. Like, I'll play a Warmongers if... You know, it's it. Let's say it's worth six every time, or whatever. Right? You can try that, but ultimately, I think just play the matchups uh, more and kind of get a feel for 
what the more powerful things are um, and you know, how you do them. Another good example is Prism and Living Legend, right? You know, you, it's really hard to assign a value to playing a parable of humility, right? Um, but if your game plan is to play a bunch of auras and overrun your opponent, then see parable, play parable, play haze bending pass, things like that. Um, uh, it, it goes into heuristics, but also just having like uh, a general thing you want to do uh, and doing that thing when you can, even if you don't know what the map looks like, because you can't always do that. No, that's that's a good point, Lucas. Um, the the example that I always go to when I talk about game plans is like Dromai versus Oldham. Like back in the day, it was just like okay, like if you're the Dromai player, you you've got to go into the match knowing that they've got forty some poppers in their deck, and you're not going to be able to play the normal way that you play. You're going to have to try to set up these like time snap potions or your you know your Chromai dusts or things like that. It was it was a lot more. Um, interesting when we had um like ghostly touch as like kind of your win condition in dromai versus like oldham and those things like that like that game is think is like the prime example of like going away from math and setting up for future turns um um and i, I like the example that lucas gave as well for about fatigue matchups as well like like um one of the things that um you see when we were playing briar at nationals like you know that the briar deck can only do seven to you most of the time. He's not doing more than seven damage to you. Um, so, like, you can afford to take a turn or two off if you're trying to set up, you know, some sort of six-card hand where it's like, this hand's not going to do it, you know. I can try to, you know, set that up in the future because if I'm wasting my cards, letting them block into me, I'm going to be losing the game. Yeah, we would, we would do things like IP penalty ourselves if we had a Scar for a Scar or an Enlightened Strike into that matchup playing Icelander because... If we were just following it up with some other attack and, and arsenaling something that didn't do damage, <clears throat> our opponent could just kind of block out and move on and not really, you know, we wouldn't really accomplish anything. So even if the math says don't just pass with the scar for scar in your hand, a lot of the time the only damage you could deal into that fatigue deck was by making sure that you always had a scar for scar into an attack and arsenal a, a damage spell. So stuff like that where it's, you know, damage stacking is another example of, of game planning. Yeah, the, putting more damage into one turn cycle versus letting your damage get eaten by their blocks. I know one of the early strategies we had as uh, Lexi or that, you know, I was working on playing it a fatigue was I wanted to burn two of my three of a kinds as quickly as possible mm -hmm. to get them in my graveyard when I'm playing against fatigue. And then I wanted to use a remembrance to cycle uh, one of them back in uh, so that at the end game, I could set up a set, a three of a kind, have a three of a kind in hand, play the one from hand, play the one from here, have a giant hand, and then push the rest of the damage that I need to get through. And that's like a very concrete uh, gameplay, uh, like game plan for that matchup. I'll say another good game plan for that matchup, Dan, if you want to talk about it, is your Fi into Bravo, you know, game plan that you had uh, going into Nationals. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was, yeah, so for that game plan, Fi usually plays Ardor, right? But we kind of determined, no, we can like play mid-range better than Bravo if we just deny the hit triggers on their side when we can and push our efficient three-card hands like or three-card 13s. Um, so we sided all the Art of Wars, all the cards that didn't block, and we put in some D-Reacts. And it was very consistent at beating Bravo. Um, I actually have a specific example of like pivoting your game plan mid-game um, at the Brawl. 
the Rum Rumble, rather. I played against Pat for winning in. This is Max versus Leviah. Um, and literally turn zero, I have to pivot my strategy, right? So I, I know what Pat's going to do because I know his strategy because we're teammates. But against a random Leviah as Max, like whether they submit Carrion Husk or Tunic <coughs> completely changes your strategy for the game. As soon as you see the Carrion Husk, that means you're free to kind of play the game normally. You can just slam your suit whenever you have it, unless they <coughs> pitch an arc smash at some point. Then they're like, okay, maybe you sit on it. Um, but if you see the tunic, they're basically saying that they have the option to fatigue you. That now means I have to protect two high octanes throughout the game. So if I banish one, I have to be very careful about banishing again. Um, another example in that game, Pat was kind enough to block with his flesh bag during the mid game. Um, my plan at that point was to figure out a way to T-bone the flashback away. Once he gave it to me, that meant I could pivot to my endgame strategy of resolve the mech suit and two high octanes in the same turn. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think another good one that, you know, we can give away, because it doesn't matter anymore, is the Leximir, uh tech, which was cut Rain Razor out of your deck uh, and play slightly more aggressive, or slightly more defensive than your opponent so you have more efficient turns. Uh, and because what happens in the mirror is that you both draw Rain Razor, and then whoever draws the Rain Razor is not allowed to block anymore on that turn, uh, which is like a big problem. If you have to block because they have good on hits, then you're stuck in this weird position. And then a lot of the times the games will go late. And so you'll redraw, you'll end up like pitching your Rain Razor to play an arrow that turn. And then later in the game, you'll draw your Rain Razor again as another no block and just run into that issue again. Um, I remember I was watching specifically a mirror that Michael Fang was playing at a battle hardened uh, and I saw him pitch the same rain razor twice in that game. And both times he drew it, the look on his face was, Oh my God, get this out of my hand. Like, cause I, cause you're in like the blocking pattern. And so like one of the game plans for that was just cut all the rain razors. Yeah. Our you know power goes down a little bit, but now we can block really efficiently and we could just throw an arrow back that has a non hit and like, you know, ask for resources yeah. back. And so it can be as simple as just like what you take out, you know, the game plans are overarching all the way to like small. Yeah, things. you can kind of just like notice play patterns and, and what you want to do in the matchup, like with the rain razor thing. Uh, basically, every time I told somebody that I caught rain razor in the mirror, they saw that I would cut it in the mirror. Uh, they'd be like, "What are you doing?" I'd be like, "Well, it's not. I don't like it." And they'd be like, "Well, the worst thing it is is a zero for four. But then that's not the worst thing it is because that means I'm letting remorselessness hit and heat seekers hit and infecting shots hit. Um, and in the matchup, the play patterns that I wanted to play to and that were the most successful when you play the mirror were to block an arrow with two cards. And playing Rain Razors doesn't really facilitate that. So even if you think that the math of a card or a play, even in a game, looks right, understanding like what play patterns have led to the Heisman presenter or what you wanted to do, what feels best, you know, if you find yourself blocking a lot in the matchup, um, you might try to find ways to exploit that, like you know, cutting your no blocks or uh, cutting cards that are awkward when you're blocking and things like that. Um, and so game planning, I think ultimately game planning is just not following math. Um, but finding unique ways to do that is like what game planning is, really. Yep. Okay, I think that's a good first question. Uh, we have a second question uh, from Fighting Walloon as well. And says, what are the most unexpected or surprising decks that have won big events? Uh, what do you think gives rise to such decks doing well? And I had, I'm thinking about Darvo. this for a little bit, and uh, there's there's not a, there's not a lot of surprising decks that win win events, in my opinion. 
Uh, but maybe you guys have one. That actually won. Uh, there there are a couple of examples. <laughs> it wasn't Kadachi though. It was Switch. So I, it was I Switch, but still, even just finding kind of out there. Uh, I... Yeah. Um. I mean, we have a couple. We like go way back. The like drone um costume deck was kind of pioneered out of nowhere. But I think we see a lot of decks doing well, but not actually winning events often. Like the Dash IO player that went like 14 and 0 or whatever it was at the calling in um, Auckland. I think it was Auckland. Um, that was really impressive, even though I didn't end up winning the event. That kind of came out of nowhere. Zuri, to a degree, came out of nowhere at that event as well. Um, we saw Kano at Pro Tour 1 come out of nowhere. Um, even if they don't win events, they, they'll do well. I think a lot of the reason that they'll do well is, um, I mean, First of all, people don't know how to play against them, or they're not prepared for them. You know, we see Kano top eight or win an event every other month because people cut AB, they cut Spellvoid, they cut Oasis Respite, um, or they're just not ready for it. Like, you know, they don't know what they're doing against it. Um, the Dash IO, potentially, like, a lot of people don't know how to block against Boom Grenades, and they're not prepared to get Fender Bendered on the last, you know, part of the chain or whatever. Um, and so there's definitely an advantage to playing an unknown deck. Uh, but also... Decks have to break out at some point, and if the first events, if the first couple of events of a format are, you know, one to two weeks after the set comes out, those decks probably aren't going to do super well because people haven't figured them out. So if you see decks start to do well, you know, a month or two months or a format after they come out, it might not be because of some like strange thing where people didn't know what they're doing. It might just be because it's been a while for you know the decks to become good and the list to become good. We saw that with Zuri. She kind of struggled at the start, but she slowly like started doing better and better. And then she was the Lexi killer. And then we realized maybe she's just a good deck that has good matchups. Um, you know, we've seen that with Dromai consistently doing better over time. Um, but I think like ultimately why decks come out of nowhere is people are unprepared and people just haven't figured it out yet. The deck's got to do well at some point if it's going to be good. And some tournament's got to be its breakout tournament. Uh, so it's, it's bound to happen for everyone. I mean, yeah, so perfect example, in my opinion, is Fatigue Briar at yeah. Nationals. Like, yeah. like, we were not surprised, but yeah, sure I mean, we weren't surprised. <laughs> yeah, you guys weren't surprised because you guys, we tested against we it. Were but, that, of like, we were I, I went seven, one. I mean, well, we, we knew that it existed. I mean, it's not like other people didn't know that it existed, but like in its capacity to like come out of nowhere, I, I think that it, it definitely exceeded expectations. Um, you like had people like myself, Charles, Jimmy, Dalton, all playing the deck and all going at least six and two in constructed. Um, and like the, like the, the funny thing is, is that you're beating dromize, like you're beating like, you know, things like that, that you matches that you should not be able to win if your opponent knows what you're doing. And it is capable of coming up with a game plan that, you know, linking back to the previous game, like, you know, you know, now they can see, okay, well, here's your strategy. So now I have to adjust. Um, so I think that one is like a huge example of a deck that, you know, is a surprising um, uh, way of thing. Um, and then another one I'll say um, is Reinar, uh, like winning uh, the calling, um, gosh, at Lil. Was it the, the calling at Lil? The, the, that was another the one that I remember I was being very surprised by. And it was kind of like the more... Smash with Big Tree. Was it was it Chandler? Was it uh yeah, I don't I don't remember who it was, but um that it was like I remember specifically it was like the was Smash Chandler. with Big Tree, um like very more value oriented Reinar 
Um, that was one that I remember. Yeah, was it was Chandler? Yeah, I thought it was Chandler, but I wasn't sure. Um, but like, I remember being very surprised at that at that one as well because that's just a, a deck that I would not have expected to see win an event for sure. Yeah, I think, I think those you have are... to say Bolander too. Bolander, yeah, Bolander. Yeah, is this is a U.S. Like Nets yeah. trend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the most innovative deck takes it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess. I mean, that was a little hard for me because I was I was playing it in practice. Um, like I was playing a Bolander list that. I was like, oh, I'm just not sure if this is good enough yet. I'm going to work on this in Worlds. And then, like, mm -hmm. uh, it's a funny story. Like, Ham Then I play Hamilton on round four uh, after. And I sit down with Hamilton, and like ha I show that I'm playing Old Him, and he shows me he's playing Icelander. And I was like, hey, I almost brought an Icelander list. And he's like, oh, really? I was like, yeah, but it's, like, a weird list. It has, like, attacks and stuff in it. And he was like, oh, really? Like, like, com like Command and Conquer? And I was like, no, like, Woundable. And then... His like first turn, he's like swing woundable at, at me, and I was like, "Oh my god, it's this deck! You're playing it!" Um, so uh, that's a, a fun story that him and I talk about from from time to time. But like, so I wasn't surprised. I guess I was surprised how good it was into old uh, old him uh, because I hadn't got enough time to work on that, which is why I didn't bring it. And I was like, "Oh, no one, no one else is going to play this this crappy deck. I'll just work on mm -hmm. it for worlds." Uh, little did I know. Um, I I don't think the Fi at worlds was very surprising to me. Person like mm -hmm. I, because CC doesn't matter at Worlds. Like it's only eight rounds, and if you get a couple of dromais, those are free wins, and then the rest of them you're flipping a coin on. Like if 40, 40 something fives show up, as long as some of them do well in draft, you should well, expect that was the to real see surprise the for me. Oh, that forty showed up, right? Yeah, yeah, yep. I mean, the, he still played incredibly well, especially in the, mm -hmm. in the top cut. So not to take anything Absolutely. away from his win by any means. It's just like when I saw they got in there, I was like, yeah. 40 people bring Fi, a couple of them are going to have some good runs, and you're going to end up with Fi's in the top But also the, the amount eight. of Icelanders you have to go through yes. in that top eight was hey, impressive. I think that matchup's hard. I think I think the Fi-Icelander oh, matchup is like not as not as Icelander uh, I was scared of people Everybody was, was calling me a fool in testing. I was like, wait, is Fi going to yeah. Iceland? And they're like, no, no, no. no, 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 no. I, did, I did draw channel like in my Fi game. So... But yeah, I do think, you know, some of these are, are, are surprising, but most of the time, I think it's like a numbers game. Um, if enough people bring a deck that is high-powered, like Fi, I think Fi is a great example. Like, Fi can just have, like, pop-off turns that are just, like, better than what other decks can do. It's just, like, it's not going to happen for everyone who brings Fi. And some of the Fi players who bring it are going to play, like, a lot of Dromai and get free wins. And you're just kind of like, if you're bringing that deck, you're kind of hoping that you're one of those people who has one of those runs. And if enough people bring the deck, some of those people are 100% going to have those those great, you know, Swiss runs. They still got to earn it in the top eight. Like, it's not like it's easy in any way. But like, the, it was the same with Briar. When Briar was showing up everywhere and it was the aggro version, like you knew you were going to have some Briar in the top eight because you knew some percentage of those Briar players are going to draw Channel Mount Heroic in every single game in their first three rounds, and those players are then going to be in top eight, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's the same kind of thing when you look at a lot of these aggro decks. Yep. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I will read this question because it cracked me up, but it says, there's no way banning 47 cards from Starvo and hitting every Guardian and Elemental deck along the way is the right thing to do. Uh, how would you define a fixed LL uh, format, what changes would you make to fix it? That's from uh, Suji time. I will say, I, the one part I do like this is, wh what do you consider a fixed LL format? I think that's a good question. Like, how do you think a how do you think a balanced LL format actually looks? 
Like, like, what makes it balanced? At minimum, you should balance. be able to play the heroes who LL'd. Yeah. I think I think it's just like any know. other meta. I think we have to discover that. Yeah, I, I think, at least in my opinion, I, I don't see a difference between Living Legend and any other like format in any game. I personally prefer formats that are a couple heroes, like somewhere from two to four. But, but like, I think... It's always going to be different for everybody. Um, I think maybe seeing Starvo for some people just exist is too much, and having to hit decks like Starvo in such like as as he so poetically put, cutting forty seven cards from his deck um, is maybe a little too much if you want Starvo to be in there. But I mean, Starvo's a problem. Get rid of him. He'll come back later. He always does. I I still I still think that Starvo is going to be very good with these changes. Like, I don't think that you're going to see Starvo drop off the, the, the LL meta. Um, like, yeah, maybe they went a little heavy handed with the number of cards, but like we had literally 114, 114 Starvos and eight in top eight. Like that's not a good sign. That's not a good showing for their, their, their first kind of competitive living legend format. And I think that LSS took that seriously. And uh, if you, if you want um, a quote-unquote balanced LL format, you need to make sure there are multiple heroes and it's not literally 11 rounds of Starvo Mirrors. Also, like, like I, I, one, of, one of my games was not a Starvo Mirror at, at, at Barcelona. One. Uh, one game. And it was against Viscerai. Um, like, it's just... You, you just... You need to have multiple heroes in the format, I think. Because you're playing, you know, not Starvo the format, you're playing Flesh and Blood. I think it's a good point. I mean, I am fine with the format being degenerate. I think mm-hmm. that the format should be degenerate. I think that's one of like, yeah. the calls. I think the cards, my my opinion is cards that do not allow other decks to be degenerate along with the degenerate decks should be not in the format. And that's why I don't like Warmongers, and that's why I don't like Awakening. I think those two cards punish other decks for trying to be just as degenerate as Starvo is. And it, they and like it just says no, you're not allowed. Only only two decks are allowed to be degenerate, and that's Prism and that's Starvo for the most part. And it's like I think those cards should go. Just let everyone just be overly powered, right? Yeah, also, but you only need like two or three decks to be honest. Yeah. Like I, we don't need Riptide <laughs> to be balanced in in any format, right? Like we don't need like Katsu playable. We don't need like these certain other decks. They just don't need to be playable. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, but should a deck like Lexi be playable? Like, Probably Lexi, not. I think, should be should be like a deck like like Dan's saying, like you should be able to play the heroes that LL'd, and I don't think you can play Lexi right now. Like, yeah. I think we should restrict more cards. My Codex, I went up too. Yeah, I think there's also um, kind of to a point to his his point about like, is this the right way to do it? I think surely the devs have been working on these balances for a while. Like, I think that this is. I think they've known that this is how they wanted to balance the format for a while. And they're just like surely they now yeah, know like that Starvo's pretty they, good. Like they they didn't like restrict eight cards <laughs> because one event happened and they were like this is probably fine. Like surely they've done testing with this format before. They know they want it to be good. We heard I think we've all heard the story of Brian Gottlieb walking up to somebody at, at Barcelona and being like, oh the top of the battle hardens up and he's like, oh is it eight Starvos? Um, like they they knew they knew what, yes. what was good. Like I think that this has been working. Yeah, but I, I don't 
I don't know if that's a Starvo issue as much as it's a Warmonders I'm, issue. I'm just, if I'm just being completely honest, I think it's yeah, just a Warmonders issue. Even with Awakening, no, I, I think Chain can 100% still play that matchup, even when they have Awakening. I've done it. I've played that matchup a bunch of times. It's hard. It's difficult. Like, there's a lot of times, there's sometimes you push on round, like, zero, and they Awakening you right away, and you're just like, well, I just wanted two damage of Arcane. That's all I wanted, but never mind. Uh, How dare you attack me on turn zero? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, like, but it's just Warmongers. Like, Viscerai is 100% a legit deck against Starvo. Like, the combo Viscerai. I think it's the best deck if Warmongers is actually It's gone. so good. And so, like, Starvo. that opens up that. And, like, Prism just gets dumpstered once you start allowing these other decks to play the game. Like, Prism, in my opinion, is the lowest, like, is, like, not a very powerful LL hero, just like Lexi isn't. Um, they're like, it's like a different tier than Chain and Starvo. It's like Chain Starvo is way up here. And then it's like Prism and them are like way down here because like Prism can't compete with any aggro decks. It's just like, it's run over. It's like, whatever. And then like Lexi LL'd in a weak format anyway. So like, it's like significantly weaker than the other decks. It's not doing near as degenerate stuff. Um, so I just think it's a warmongers issue. That's, that's letting Starvo just run, run a miss. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just come back to most of us didn't play any. We were like, let's let's let the chains yeah. prove to us that they could do it. And maybe they hit all the, the warmongers and they died. But yeah. I played zero chains and I didn't see any chains anywhere near the top. I, I played so. one chain when I was X and mm -hmm. one. And it mm -hmm. didn't matter because they had too many cards in their deck. They had like 75 cards in their deck. So they had no pressure and the game was just like folded mm -hmm. over. But yeah, so I don't know. I, I would love to see what, what the, the new the new meta will look like and see if we can test that further. Yep. I just feel I feel for Viserai. Like Viserai really wants to play the game, but like they take so many turns to set up that like the chances of you having a warmongers and setting on it and then the turn that they take damage, you just play your warmongers and you're just like mm -hmm. uh is a little scary. It smack to reality. Oh I, I almost yeah. got Chris Iole. He had the other Yeah, one. yeah. I we had it. I was I was waiting. I was hoping. <laughs> I put it in against the chain because I was really hoping to just break all the shackles. Mm. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, next one here uh, comes from Cusco. Uh, with the changes to the L, uh, to, with the changes to LL, what cards would you personally put on a watch list? For, a watch list for potential restrictions in the future, and why is Icelander not playable in the format? Uh, it was never playable in the format. Icelander is not strong <laughs> enough. It's just not a good enough deck to play with other heroes. I mean, we, we've seen chain beat Icelander, which a lot of people thought was impossible, but it just doesn't matter. The, the deck's like good on a number value reason. And in LL format, no one cares about a frostbite. Yeah. Chain has so many blues that they, that doesn't even matter. Like, like chain can just power through ice cards. Like I remember how many games against Cody have I played where I had channel like frigid out and he still goes mm -hmm. six wide. Like oh, it yeah. just like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I think, the most, yep. I think, uh, but, yeah, little, I think maybe there was something if, if ice Lander was allowed, maybe she could have been okay into chain like fatiguing, but the Bravo, the Starbo matchup is like so garbage. If they have like, if they have arcane barrier in their deck, like, Oh my God. Like you can't, you don't even have a win condition. Like what? Like you get a wounded bull them. Like they'll either block, like block with two cars and swing hammer, or they'll just kill you. Like, can you imagine yeah. winning bulling a star? Maybe now. I like. I don't know. I, it's also I've seen some people online complain about like Lexi and Icelander and Olden or Olden to a lesser extent, but Bravo getting hit by this list. But nobody cares. Like Dan said. We don't care about those heroes. Let the LL 
It's not like going to LL. Yeah, uh, Oldham, I think, is like, exactly. that's not what Actually, you're like, I think oh, Oldham's, Oldham's different, but I think yeah. for Icelander and, like, Bravo, people are mad about Bravo getting hit. Like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, like, they can print an Oldham spec mm -hmm. in the expansion slot, right? Yeah. Hey, they can buff these Oldham. heroes that got hurt. I mean, hey, there, there's there's a card for, for Oldham, the Oldham. Northern yeah. Winds or whatever. Yeah, the best card in Flesh and Blood before we knew what it did. As a wild, Dude, like, the card was insane. <laughs> like it was broke, and then it was never. Yep. Okay. Next question here from Julian is: What's everyone's opinion on the highest and lowest uh, skill ceiling deck in Fab? <clears throat> highest is Dash IO. I agree. In my opinion, okay. I hundred percent agree. I, I don't think like Kano, Levi, is Kano are respectable. I think it's Dash IO by far. Like, th is... here's a hot take. Here's a hot take for everyone. I think Kano is hard the first five or six games you play yeah. with Kano, and then immediately after that, the deck is yeah. really simple. Like, you just, I, you get back to do a corner where you just have to go off, and then you just see if you got it. But, like, once you understand how to hit the combo from, like, seven different angles, you're just like, oh, this is just what I'm doing. It's the same thing every game. It's very, it's it's very much like you're playing the same game all the time. You're just hoping that you hit something off the top. Sometimes you have those turns where you, like, have to draw seven tomes in a row in order to win the game. But like, if they do happen, then you win. And if they don't happen, they don't, but you didn't have to make yeah, any decision around that. So like, so I think the deck's like pretty simple. simple. Right. Because oh, there's oh. things like Kano where yeah. it is really, really hard to play, but you have like, once you put the reps in, it's pretty simple. Like it's like a preparation skill deck. Um, Cause it isn't just wildfire comboing and everything, right? There's pitch stacking that is difficult and it takes time. There is like doing math on whether you should go off or not. And, you know, understanding how to chip certain matchups. But, like, ultimately, like, once you know what you're doing, the games are pretty easy. Um, and then there's decks like um, Leviya or Dash.io, where every game is so different and so dynamic that there's a lot of skill, like, within the games themselves that exist outside of just general heuristics and preparation. And there's kind of, like, a scale on that. Like, Icelander, I think, was kind of more towards Kano, where, like, a lot of people said Icelander was really hard to play, but... That deck was really easy once you'd played it enough, because most of the games were pretty similar. It's, do I arsenal this card or this card? And that was, like, the only decision you really made. Um, but there there are, like, really other hard decks, like Dan said, like Dash.io, where not only do you have to put the work in, but you also have to play at the table and play differently. Um Obviously, the hardest. Yeah, none of those games feel the same. Like I agree. Like yeah, you have like infinite decision. Yeah, trees. Dash IO is just infinite decision trees. And like, I had a Levia game at at locals that I had to sit and tank for like ten minutes to try and figure out because I had like twenty seven different options. I'm playing like the the spoiled skull helmet. I have I have I flipped over into blasphemet and like, and so I'm trying to figure out. I have to kill my opponent in this one turn. And so I have a million different actions that I don't know the result is going to be. It's incredibly difficult mm -hmm. to navigate. And even after playing it, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I played this turn wrong. I would need another 30 minutes to walk everything through to figure out. Like that stuff doesn't happen in Kano and other like Icelander. Were you talking like Leviathan there? Yeah. Or Dasha? Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Like, no, it's, Leviathan. like it's just, you know. Yeah. And then there's always gaps. Like, do I do it? I don't know. Yeah, Tank is another example, I think, of a deck that's really easy um, to play once you've played it well. Honestly, I think if you've done well with Jane, I mean, it's really just a testament to being able to put work in it. It's not. It's easy to do well with chain. The skill ceiling yeah. is quite high. Yeah. What's so the lowest? Is it? Is it... To... Oh, no, let Pat, let Pat go. Yep. No, no. The, the only point I was trying to make about K 
Kano um, specifically is yes, like your your lines are very simple, like to figure out like how to pull the combo off and like what to do to get there. But the spots to pivot, like when when are we blocking and when are we going for it? Those are things of the decision, in my opinion, that are really hard as Kano, um, because like you are not only having to put yourself where you're sport where what Cody was saying, like when you're backed into a corner and you ideally don't want to do that. So that, to me, that's the one that the thing that I think makes I Kano. Do, I do Kano think that's another learnable thing um, to a degree. Is like sure, it's it, maybe it is learnable, but but for 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 me specifically, I think that that makes it one of the more harder harder decisions to make because like. Yeah, you can you can block. I've seen plenty of Kano's just like you know just over block and just like never turn the corner. Or I've also seen Kano's like try to go for it too early, and it's just like you, you know you just you, you've been in these spots where you know seeing both both sides of it, and and then you see the good Kano's that actually win, and it's like would I have made that decision? Probably not. Well, like there are I, don't, no good I don't know. Kano's like Kano's you know, don't so. what are you, what are you talking about? These are all just guys. <laughs> I, mean, I just think it's I. <laughs> It just feels Julian different just than playing like Dash IO or you know even. Yeah, Lydia. I just think the ceiling's lower. It's just completely a different. It's hard to play, but I, I will I will not disagree I mean, that Dash IO is also very difficult. It's just a whole different level of difficult. You we have so too many options. Ceiling on Dash IO. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's like, like no one's like, there. Like I said, there's like two scales, and Dash IO is just like really high on both of them. Like you really have to do yeah. a lot of work and also just know what you're doing at the table. There's so much that goes on. Prism, I think, is like. What is the least? What is the least skill? I think deck? it depends on which category. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, is it Pouncing it Links 5? Pouncing Links 5. Like, Pouncing Links 5 is literally just numbers. Once you learn the, the Phoenix Flame tricks, yeah. it's just understanding how much damage you can do each turn and the important damage. I think it's specials. Bravo. Uh, I think Bravo has mm. yeah. more expected value than decks like Phi. Because Bravo, like, you have to weigh, like, how much is a Spinal Crush worth? Because, like, you know, you swing Spinal Crush, or you can block 6 and swing 4, and it's like, it's 9 versus 10 value, but maybe it's, you're getting enough points from not throwing it. Or, like, how much is the Dominate worth? I do think he's relatively easy to play, but, like, Fies, like, you just do the numbers when you're playing Pouncing Links. Or, like, there are a couple other examples, I think. Like, Starbo, in some matchups, like, like, into Viscerai, like, wow. Me look at hand, me say bazinga, me swing, me go. Like, pretty, it's pretty simple what's going on. Like, there's no tricks. I, I, if I'm trying to sure, read it... in that matchup, yeah, yeah. but Starvo Mirror is... Yeah, I agree. I think, honestly, true. if you, if you I, can I win think... Starvo Mirror consistently and, and nobody else can at a given event, that you're just the best player in the world. Like, if you play, like, nine Starvo Mirrors, ah. you win all of them. <laughs> like, you're insane. <laughs> like, get out of here. I just, I think playing perfect on Bravo is easier than playing perfect on Phi. Yeah, sure. Um, Bravo, that- Bravo Perfect's a lot easier, I think, to get to that point than it is the Phi. Aggro decks are deceptively difficult mm-hmm. to play perfectly um, in mm-hmm. almost all card games because you have to push every little bit of damage in order to actually win with that deck most of the time, uh, depending on what the format looks like. I think Bravo playing it, that deck absolutely perfectly is, is probably the easiest. I think Bravo has... I like them both as like the yeah they're, they're close. The I think test. they're close because like five there's no disruption right like you're maybe, just maybe it's just cause I, maybe it's just because I really like optimal and understand I think usually any state. any deck that's game plan involves blocking is is always going to be relatively difficult where like five like you do block like you're not going to win basically any game playing five where you just never block that's why I'm saying like combo yeah five. but like I think playing Bravo like I don't know maybe it's just because I'm going to play Bravo it, 
soon. Like, I might play it in a tournament, and I've been playing a lot recently, but, like, I feel like he's been pretty <laughs> challenging. Like, I've definitely seen a lot of people play Bravo and make decisions that I wouldn't make, even if they seem, like, reasonable. Just because there are, like, so many different things that you can do with so many hands that aren't, like, immediately obvious. But I'm also just, you know, bad, so... One thing, another one that I'll that I'll say is probably low, lower uh, is Kasai and Blitz. That deck uh, very much plays itself a lot of the time. Like whenever you're like, oh, yeah. make my attack reaction and make my two attacks and then combo off with blood with the hand. the blood on the hands. I think that one's like relatively low skill, oh, skill level because like most your turns are kind of the same. I played that deck in a team battle hard. That was like the easiest tournament I've ever played. I had. One challenging game where I played pistol plan into a fatigue boost. and every other matchup was just like, if I drew two blues, I'd block three. Otherwise, I'm not blocking. <laughs> like, there's not a whole lot going on here. I can't do anything else. I have my pounder. I have my pounder card. I have my pistol. Go. Like, I mean, I, I just played <laughs> half of Brody's Viscerai or Vincent Chain deck. Like, that was my job. My games were over in five minutes. <laughs> because my hands had boosted and then they were dead. Very simple. Okay, next question here from Matt is uh, how much do you guys use the hyper geometric calculator for constructed and limited deck construction? I use it a lot, actually. Um, yeah, I'd say for most yeah. decks, we... Especially new decks. Check yeah, for especially, especially new decks. Because mm -hmm. some decks, we like generally know like how many we're supposed to like, because you usually, I mean, you use it for ratios, like, that's what it's there for. Um, but for new decks, it's like, you know, how many blues do I want to see per hand? How many can I afford to see per hand? You know, do I need a blue? Is two blues okay? Is three blues okay? Like, that stuff is where you use the calculator, and it's really effective. Um, I would say for stuff yeah. like Bravo or, or Icelander, like, really didn't use it a whole lot, because once you figure it out, like, like once you've played it enough, you, you don't really need it past then. Um kind of just like a feeling thing like we we knew forever from my signer was like we wanted somewhere between like 38 and 43 blues depending on the matchup and it was like sometimes we were like you're crazy for playing 38 or you're crazy for playing 43 but like we were never like going to the calculator and being like is it better to play 39 or 38 in this matchup like i don't know like just choose yeah we'd also I look for like the point of diminishing returns like we were testing five against Icelander. I think 18 blues was that point. And that gave you like one in six and a half hands to have no blue. Like that's not playable against Icelander. So I was petitioning we need 25 blues because that puts you at like 11%. And that's the only like reasonable number I saw to like consistently win that matchup. But you can't play 25 blues in five. Coward. I, I got to be I honest, did I did not know what the hypergeometric calculator was. Uh, Matt sent me a message on, on Facebook and he was like, do you use this? And, you know, I was like, <laughs> what are you talking about? I don't know what this is. Uh, I, I am usually a player that kind of doesn't use math that often when building decks. I'm usually playing by feel in, in my games and when deck building. Um, so maybe I can use this to improve my game i've definitely been looking into it and uh definitely gonna take some efforts to try to apply it to some some of my stuff but i don't know i, I think that you don't have to <laughs> i don't yeah, know not, that's not the way i approach that necessary i think a lot of the time like because most of it you can just use feeling for because flesh and blood is a game of i think it's helpful at i don't the buy beginning. that I don't like 
when I was first learning and building and working on chain, we used it quite often, but we used it so often that like now I just kind of know in rough areas where I want blues and stuff to be based on how other decks perform, you know, with those similar numbers. So it's like not as often needed unless it's like great. The great example is the Phi into Icelander match when we were talking about that before. We're like, okay, how, how, how big of a deal is 16 versus 19? Yeah. Is there a happy medium in here that we can just lean into that's just like, this is good enough? What, right. The heuristic for that matchup is literally you need one blue every hand. Yep. If you do that for the whole game, you're probably winning. Yep. But yeah, maybe a little more. Uh, also from Matt here is uh, what cards do you think Vincent needs for her to pick up more slots in tournaments? And I will answer this very simply. A power card. She is in need of a power card. Playing Vincent is like playing uh, Briar with no channel mount heroic. The deck mm-hmm. is still good number wise, but there's nothing to catch you up from getting a rune blade hand. And so like is Revel and Rune Blade Revel not like a power card. Kind of a power no, really. card, but you just need to like you need to do a lot. Like it's it's still just part of a big turn that Vincent has. Revel is not channel mount heroic, right? Like these are there's no way that's a power. It card. needs a, cha- a channel mount heroic in order to play the game because when you're playing power cards are like one cards for like seven plus value. Yes. Codex, Arbor, like Blood Rush, Codex. And when you yeah. take one turn off, you lose all of the numbers that you've gained throughout the entire game, and there's no catch up mechanic for that, so you just get hard punished. Also, I would never expect Vincent to actually be good in this game. Uh, it has been mentioned several times by people who like by LSS that like letting her play stuff for free is scary to them, so I would never expect her to really be pushed, which I mean, is just sad. Yeah, the, the other answer, other than a power card, is obviously she has consistency problems, like there are theoretically, like, ways to increase her consistency, give her more runegate cards, give her more more envelopes, more or envelopes. just, like, ways to use her hands, and, like, make runegates, like, maybe another good weapon, like, her weapon right now is pretty bad, like, it's serviceable, but it's not a good weapon, um, or potentially, like, three blocks. That's a, a problem that she has right now, is, like, when she gets her rune blade in hand, it's four two blocks, mm. and you banish a card at the start of your turn. So, like, if you have four non-attacks, like, your hand is worth eight at best. Like, that's really scary, but, like, if you could get a bunch of three-block non-attacks in those slots, maybe it's okay, because your hand could be worth 12. Or even 10 or 11. Like, God forbid you can play your cards or block with your cards in, like, some reasonable fashion. Um, I think the new card helps though, and I think yeah, it's really think, good in blades. Yeah, yeah, more, more quick. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, next, last question here from AT- ADC God is: Is Prism hype yes. overblown? Uh, what will her actual lever of compatible viability be, especially when a set filled with poppers and other brute toys are about to be released? Yeah. So, how good do you think Prism actually is? Going I mean. To be? I don't think it's her meta. I think she gets a power boost. No. Uh, her her matchup into the aggro decks gets a lot better, but honestly, I thought she was already really good into the aggro decks. I thought the main issues were dash IO, or sorry, no, dash one, dash inventory extraordinaire, obviously Hiromai, and then Brutes. I think those were like the biggest problems, and I just can't see how Brute and Guardian get, or Brute specifically, get worse. Um... You know, Dromai gets worse, and also Dash 1 gets worse. Maybe if the new Warrior cards and the new Guardian cards are really strong, um, but they're not strong in a way that makes the Prism matchup uh, better, 
like that could be good. Like if the meta devolves into like Warrior and Dash IO and Bai and Katsu and Bravo, and those are the best decks, like Prism is fine, but I think it's Brutes yeah, versus like Max. Brutes and Max are coming. both bad matchups for uh for Prism. And then also like good god, if there's another illusionist out there, like you just forget about it. Like you you'd be like me at the ten K and literally just concede and get ice cream and like Oh, that ice cream. It was good ice cream. Oh. I miss it. Yeah. Do I think about it every day? I think Prism is way better than she was before, but I don't think this meta is going to work, just like you said. Yeah. This. The weapon the weapon does seem quite strong, I think. Mm-hmm. It's definitely going to be, you know, a boon for the hero, but um, I just, there's, you're coming into a set with presumably a whole bunch of hoppers being added in, so we're going to make these decks and... That's why the brew match was so hard. Yeah, agility, agility, agility yeah, tokens, and you know things like can't that. Can't pop my herald yeah. and then roll scabs <laughs> to kill my passing rush. Like that's just absolutely, like, that's just cheating. Yeah. Like, <laughs> did I spend four cards to like Genesis passing? You just like roll scabs, qua qua. Like, go. like come on, <laughs> I worked so hard for this. Yeah, scabskins is a pretty messed up card yeah. against against illusionist. It's a pretty messed yeah. up card in general, to be fair. Especially against Prism. We'll see. I think I think Prism might see more play just because people yeah. want a player. Uh, and yeah. this gives you a good excuse. And it gives you matchups that like feel kind of overwhelming in yeah, your favor like, now. Also easy to play. Uh, which is nice to play. Yeah. And pretty easy to play, yeah. Um, and like and they're pretty enjoyable, but I do not think I don't think everyone was always worried about that weapon, but I don't think that weapon's gonna make her tier one. I'd be very surprised if we come out of this next set and Prism is the best deck in the game. Be very surprised. Yeah. Also, I don't get to play 30 Blues, okay. so you don't have the well, best deck builder in the game on the deck. So, like, why are, why are we even bothering? <laughs> well, thanks, guys. We have ran this a little bit long today, so we gotta go. Yeah, Let's go. Seven, Goodbye, everyone. Uh, See, I could do here darkness. is go ahead and play the envelope. Uh, all three pitches of Envelope and Darkness.